Thank you, choir. Thank you very much. I was, uh, I had a little thing I was going to do. See, Renee wanted to see the first service and this service, but she told me she wasn't going to listen to the sermon twice. Can't really understand that. Kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. So as she walked out, I was going to glare at her as she went, but she beat me before I got up here. How horrible is that? All right. Anyway, want to talk about this morning uh, at, at my house. It's a standard Saturday night ritual, sometimes Sunday morning, mostly a Saturday night ritual that someone will invariably say, is it going to be short tomorrow? And I will invariably say that I will preach until I get through, to which someone will always quote to me scripture, Jesus wept, to help me understand. You don't have to have lots of words. Well, this morning I'm preaching on that scripture. It's John chapter 11, verse 35. I'm going to be going over John, uh, John chapter 11, and then we'll, we'll move into some other things. But John chapter 11 is where we're, where we're at. Verse 35 says just that, that Jesus wept. That's the focal point of where we're going. Now, in the story that happens in chapter 11, for those of you that... Uh, have been in church forever, or you may have heard it on television, you've heard it somewhere else. It's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were good friends of Jesus. He stayed at their house some and, and, uh, and was very close to them. And at this particular point in time, Jesus is with his disciples at a place called Bethany across the Jordan. It's a place where five springs came together, formed a little pool before it ran off into the Jordan River, which was a great place to baptize. So they think that's where John the Baptist did his baptizing, and that's where Jesus was at this time. It was about 17 miles away from Jerusalem, about 15 miles away from Bethany, where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were. Jesus was at this place on purpose because the people in Jerusalem wanted to kill him, and it wasn't time for that to happen yet. So he's over there. And while they're over there, it's morning like this morning. You wake up, you got some puffy clouds in the sky. It's sort of cool, uh, sort of cool. There's a little breeze blowing, just a day like any other day. The birds are singing. A messenger comes. And this messenger comes and says to Jesus, Lazarus, who you love, is sick. And not just sick, but he's going to die. And Mary and Martha want you to come. And Jesus did nothing. He didn't go. He said, okay. And off the messenger went. Back at the ranch in Bethany, Lazarus died. Jesus never came. So Mary and Martha took Lazarus' body and they washed it like the custom said. And then they took spices and they wrapped him in spices, rubbed spices all over his body. They take little strips of linen cloth and starting with his toes, they worked all the way up his body till he was completely covered with linen cloth from his head to his toes. The men came, hoisted him up on, their, on his on their shoulders. They walked. If you were here for the Karen Peck concert, Karen described going to Lazarus' tomb, and she said that it wasn't what she expected, that they actually got to go to the place, and that you go through an opening, and then you go way back in this cave, and you turn, and then there's a little door 
carved in the stone and you crawl through that and inside that there's a stone slab that's been carved into the side of the mountain. They carried Lazarus in. They fit him through that little hole. They set him on the cold stone slab. They left. They rolled a big stone over the gate, over the door of that cave to keep the wild animals out and to keep the smell in. Lazarus was probably dead for about three days when Jesus turned to his disciples and said, it's, it's, it's time to go. So they were going to have to walk 15 miles, so either they did it over the course of two days. Maybe Lazarus was dead for four days because it was the fourth day that they made it to Bethany. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, guys, it's, we're going to go to Lazarus' house. And the disciples said to him, listen, that is not smart. There are people there that want to kill you, and if you go there, you will die. And Jesus says, it's time to go, boys. So as they walk out, y'all remember Doubting Thomas? Have you ever heard that phrase, he's, he's a Doubting Thomas? Well, the disciple named Thomas that was the Doubting guy turned to everybody else, and he says, guys, if he's going, we might as well go with him so that we can all die together. They weren't quite as cowardly as we make them out to be. So they walk to Bethany. When they get there, they see Jesus. Somebody sees Jesus, recognizes him. He, uh, they run and they get Mary and Martha, except Mary now. And I think if you will read the Bible like I ask you to read the Bible, like you do any other story that you read, Listen to what is said. They go to get Mary and Martha. They're close. They're friends. They love each other. You know the whole drill. And they go to get Mary and Martha, and, Mar and Mary won't come. She just stays put. I think she's a little angry with Jesus. We'll see later on what she says may be. But Martha comes out to Jesus. And when she gets there, the first thing out of her mouth was, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she adds something to it. She says, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. So she sort of cracks the door a little bit. Says, you know, you know, you could if you wanted to. I know you could. There's a little something there. And Jesus replies to her and he says, your brother will rise again. And like any good church person that's ever been, we immediately kick into church words. And say, oh, yes, on the last day he'll rise. I know on the last day he'll rise again, Lord, I'll know. And Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? And she says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. So Martha leaves, and she goes to get Mary. Don't know what that conversation looked like, but Mary comes out. She greets Jesus with the very same words. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when you read the scripture, when you read that story in John, you find out that Jesus, John didn't record any of those words that, that Jesus might have said to her. There was nothing as far as we can tell. Jesus didn't say anything. I believe he didn't say anything because 
inside of Jesus, something was happening that we don't believe could happen to Jesus. See, we have Jesus as this almost robotic character. He never gets ruffled. He's always calm. The only time we ever see him angry is when he goes to the temple and starts flipping tables and telling everybody to get out. All the rest of the time, he's cool as a cucumber. No matter what happens, they're having a storm, waves are crashing, the men are in the boat, they think they're going to sink, and Jesus is in the back playing cards, going, yeah, it's going to be fine, boy, it's going to be fine. Everything. He didn't really play cards, and good Baptist, you won't die and go to hell, okay? I got a group of ladies in here that play cards several times a week somewhere back there. They'll go to heaven, I know they will. It'll be close, but they'll get there. Anyway, Jesus is unflappable. But in this story, that's not what's happening. In this story, Jesus is becoming very emotional. Something's going on inside of Jesus, welling up inside of him, and it's about to overflow. I want you to hear this scripture. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Wherever you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he be, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and there was a stone laying against it. Now, why did Jesus cry? That sounds like the silliest question that anybody could ask. When you are around people who are grieving that you care about, you just about can't help yourself. Tears come to your eyes. Obviously, Martha, uh, Martha's got the gift of hospitality. She has served Jesus and the disciples food. We know that in one of the stories in the Bible, she got in trouble because she was working so hard to make everything good for Jesus and the disciples that she got mad at her lazy bum sister, because all of our siblings are always lazy bums, right? We're the, we're the good guy. They're the, you know, and so she, she won't help me. Jesus says, chill, baby. She's doing all right. Do your thing. That was Martha, had that kind of relationship with Jesus, wanted him to feel loved and comfortable. Mary, on the other hand, was the one who went to Jesus and bowed down at his feet and poured perfume over his feet and unbound her hair and washed his filthy feet with her hair. They had that kind of a relationship. Love, so much love that he has for them, of course he wept out of compassion. And I don't believe that's true. In fact, I think the scripture tells us something completely different. For one reason, I don't believe Jesus would endorse that kind, that kind of grief. If you've ever been to a funeral, I use this verse twice this week at a funeral. If you've ever been to a funeral, you may have heard this verse. And this verse says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. That you will not grieve as those who have no hope. And what was going on in this story 
is that when Jesus says, do you believe, Mary says, oh, we'll all rise again, we'll all rise again. She says the right word, but in her heart she's going, Lazarus is dead, there is no hope, he's not coming back, I'll never see him again. Ah, can't live this way. And Jesus sees all of this. He sees all this grieving that's going on. He can't be sympathetic to that. He tells us, don't grieve that way. Don't grieve that way. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. You heard me. Now, we've got a problem here. Either Jesus failed Hebrew, you know, that subject-verb agreement thing is a problem, or he's already talked to the Father. Thank you that you heard me. He's already, he's already talked to the Father. He already knows what's about to happen. He knows what he and the Father have decided to do in this situation. See, the reason I don't believe that his tears were tears of compassion is because the words deeply moved, the word that is translated deeply moved means angry. It means to be filled with indignation. And the word troubled means that inside of him, in his emotions, the word means that your calmness is taken away. We look at Jesus, he's calm all the time, right? These words are saying that he doesn't have calmness anymore. Have you ever been so angry that your hands shook? Maybe you haven't. Maybe I'm the only one with that issue, but I got a feeling. That's where I believe Jesus was. The commotion inside of him, what was welling up inside of him, his hands shaking. They get to the tomb. Gentlemen. Ladies, y'all can listen to this. You're just going to go, yep, mm -hmm, that's right. Men, you know how we do. This is sexist. You get over it. Here's what men do. We argue. We have a fight. And then we leave. And we calm down. Everything's good. Life's fine. We walk away from it. <sighs> it's okay. And the woman's still over there. She'll be mad for about 42 years because that's what women do. But the guy, on the other hand, he's, he's walked away. He's over it. When you read this scripture, you find out that Jesus didn't get over it that way. He walked away from where it was, and he walks to the tomb. And when he gets to the tomb, that word is used one more time. The word is used here that he is deeply troubled. Same word, that passion is burning in his heart. And he says, he says, roll the stone away. And Mary goes, <laughs> Jesus, uh, he's been dead for four days now. When we roll that stone away, we're going to smell him decaying. That's the last thing we want here. And Jesus turned to her, and like every parent that's ever done to every kid that's ever been born, he turns to her and says, did I not tell you? How many times have you done that to your kids? Didn't I tell you to brush your teeth? Didn't I tell you to comb your hair? Didn't I tell you to put on your clothes? Didn't I tell you not to go outside? Didn't I tell you to get ready for school? Didn't I tell you to do your homework? Didn't I tell you? Oh, and Jesus turns to her and says, did I not tell you that if you believed, 
you would see the glory of God. Didn't I tell you? Why is Jesus so passionately indignant? What is it in him that's responding this way to these people that he loves so much? What is this? I want to remind you of something. John 1.1 at the very beginning of all of this, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. The Word was Jesus, and in the beginning, he created all that there is. He created all. Now, maybe you're not a, a, a Christ follower, you're not a believer. Maybe you believe that, that he wasn't there in the beginning, that it takes too big of a stretch of, of, of faith to believe that there's a, a pre-existent God who has been here eternally and will be here eternally. That's fine, you don't have to believe that. But here's what I just want to throw at you right quick. you got to believe that either he was here pre-existent or all matter was here pre-existent. You've got to have faith in that. You can't prove that scientifically. You can tell me it's science all you want to, but actually it is just somebody's hypothesis of how things happened. So you use all of your faith to believe that we're all an accident. I'm going to use all of my faith to believe that there's a pre-existent God who created everything that is and that his name was Jesus, as the Scripture tells me. And Jesus created all of this. Jesus created all of this. The water, the land, the plants, the trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, the cool breeze that you felt this morning, the crisp air when you walked outside, the pollen that makes your throat feel a little funny right now. Jesus created all of this perfectly. And here Jesus is in the midst of this. In the middle of all of this creation that he had created, he feels the breeze on his skin. He feels the hot sun on his head. He's in the middle of all of this, and he sees the effect that sin is having on his creation, and it infuriates him. Because this is not what he wants for his people. This isn't what he's looking for. He wants them to see and he wants them to know his indignation burns at the unbelief. Their love for Jesus is only as strong as him turning water into wine or him, him making misshapen legs be straight so they can walk. Their bellies are filled from a few loaves and fishes. Water one time is made hard so he could walk on it. Sick people are healed. A blind guy gets new eyes. Never, ever does their belief extend beyond what can I eat, what can I wear, what can I own, what can I do, where can I go, what is in this life for me? That sounds so familiar. It sounds so familiar. His anger burns at the sin that blinds them to life. We trivialize sin. We really do. You know, for too long the church has been known for what it's against. Oh, and we can stand here all day. We're against drinking and drugs and promiscuous sex and lying and stealing and cheating and all of this stuff. And we call that sin. Sin is deeper than that. Sin gnaws on us from the inside out and makes us look in all kinds of places for something to give us the answer to life. It causes us to study 
chakras and consult shaman and we listen to Oprah and Chopra and we buy books and we go to lectures and elixirs and potions and all kinds of crystals and we come to church and we all act like little good boys and girls so that that'll all work and there's some of us that go outside and raise our fist to the heavens and say I don't believe in anything at all and we're all trying to answer the same question what is in this life for me? What is in this life for me? Jesus is angry because in all of this, in all of people seeking and hungry and hurting, Jesus is listening for one simple statement. Actually, it's a question. Jesus can I come home? It's all he wants. All this nonsense that we put ourselves through. Jesus, can I come home? I'm not where I belong. And I just want to come home. Jesus came. His sole purpose, his sole purpose was to destroy the power that sin had over his creation. His goal was for us to see life, to see him, and to enjoy him. He, 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 he created us to enjoy his presence. I take, I take some of that from Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, there's two times of a day that you walk for enjoyment. Now, if you are a parent, you have walked on the beach in the middle of the day with your children, and it about killed you. But that's where the kids wanted to go. But when it's just you and your significant other, you either walk at sunrise or you walk at sunset. That's when you see the old coots walking down the beach holding hands because even old coots are still in love because they go out in the evening time. It's a little bit cooler. Sun's going down. God's glory shines all around. The father came to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day just because. He didn't want them to do anything. He wasn't asking for any work. He just wanted to be together. Let's just be here. Let's walk together. Let's enjoy each other. What God wants for us is to be in his presence, to experience his glory. This is the worst illustration in the world, but I haven't got anything better. Have you ever been around anybody that you just want to be around, that they are a fun person, that they're not, they're not egotistical, they're not narcissistic, they're not standing there thinking I'm the greatest and everybody needs to come with me. They're just a person that just, they, they simply love life, they love what they're doing, they always find adventure, they always find an adventure to be in, they're always doing something and everybody wants to be with them just to be a part and to enjoy it. And when they're all together, they all have a blast. 
That's kind of what he wants. Just to be together. That's the whole point. So, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth. Lazarus came forth. And then in a few, few days, he gets on a, an animal and he rides it into Jerusalem. And all the people are shouting, Hosanna, 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 which means save us, save us, save us. Save us, Jesus. And he goes on into town. He has the upper room. He has the disciples there. He tells them what's about to happen. Sort of tells them goodbye for a little bit. And then he prays a prayer. And in that prayer, he prays for us. In that prayer, you can go read it for yourself. He prays for us. And then the temple guards come. And they arrest Jesus. He did not fight them. So they mistook that for weakness. And they mocked him. They spit on him. They hit him on the head. They whacked him with rods upside his head. They stripped his clothes off. They put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Pretended he was a king. He never fought them. Then they colluded with Rome. Because, see, they could have stoned Jesus to death. Now, it would have been illegal, and somebody would have gotten in trouble, but a couple of months from now, they're going to stone Stephen to death. So it's in them to do it, but they wanted something worse than that. They wanted Jesus to be lifted up in front of everybody as an example that this man said he was the king of the Jews, and he ain't nothing. Follow us. Don't follow stupid people like him. That's their whole point. They wanted him to die as gruesome a death as he possibly could. And so they take him, they colluded with Rome, they talked with, uh, brought him before Pilate. Pilate was as bad as Adam was in the garden with Eve. All Adam had to do was look at Eve and say, don't touch that tree. You know what happened. Don't touch that tree. Jesus said, God said, "Mm, don't touch that tree. Instead, he goes, oh, sure, honey, it's pretty apple. Let's eat of it. Pilate does the same thing here. He's got all of these people in front of him who are angry. And he says, well, if I tell them no, it's going to be a problem, so I'm going to have him beaten. If you go to Isaiah 52, 53, I can't remember exactly where it is. I was reading it this week. In that, it says that the Messiah will be beaten so badly that they won't hardly even be able to tell that he's a man. And here's Jesus beaten so badly and bruised and Pilate's hoping so bad, so bad, that everybody will feel sympathetic and say, just let him go because he knows there's nothing wrong with this man. And instead, it's like blood in the water for sharks. Crucify him. We don't want this man. He has nothing to do with us. So this is how my mind thinks. They're going to march Jesus. They march Jesus outside the town through the city gates to the top of a hill where they're going to crucify him. That hill overlooks the garbage dump. The last thing that Jesus sees alive on this earth as he's dying, the most intimate moment of a person's life is smelling the smells of refuse, smelling the smells of, the, of rotting things that have been thrown into the dump, and he is there dying. There's a little bit of symbolism in the story as it goes along. Because at 9 a.m. in the morning, It's when a priest blows a shofar that says, it's time for the morning sacrifice. And at 9 a.m., they drove nails through Jesus' hands. 
and they drove nails through Jesus' feet. And he hung there from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. when the priest blows the second shofar that says that it's time for the evening sacrifice. And then we hear this. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished in the Scripture, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine to a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. They took his body down. They were in a hurry. I won't go into all that, but they were in a hurry. Took his body down, washed it the best they could. They put spices on it the best they could at that moment. They took strips of white cloth, just like they did with Lazarus. They started binding him at his feet. And they bound him all the way up his body until it got to the very tip of his head and had him bound hand, head to toes in white cloths. Some men came and picked him up and took him to Joseph's tomb. It was like a cave carved into the side of a hill. And they put Jesus through this little door and laid him on a cold stone slab inside that tomb. And they walked out and they rolled a stone in front of it to keep the wild animals out and to keep the stink in as much as possible, just like Lazarus. Happened on Friday. Sun went down. No Jesus. All day on Saturday, it was a Sabbath day. They could only do so much stuff on the Sabbath day because if you broke a rule, you got in trouble for it. So they did what they were supposed to do on the Sabbath day. They went to the temple. They did all that kind of stuff. They came home. Evening came. Still no Jesus to walk with. But then Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he did it for this reason. See, the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. He didn't send Jesus to judge you. You're always worried. Every one of us is worried about doing it right and getting the right thing and making sure we're in the right place and following all the right rules. We don't do anything wrong. We want to be the best people we possibly can. He didn't send his son to the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That you might say, and I might say, Daddy, 
I want to go home. See, the Bible uses a word for us saying that we're lost. Lost just means that you're somewhere you're not supposed to be. And we all want to be where we're supposed to be. Because that's where Daddy is. And Daddy always does great stuff. And he always knows just what to say. And he lets me say and do stupid things. And and he doesn't tell me that I'm ridiculous. He just holds me close. And he never lets me go. That's my daddy. And all he wants is for us to say, I want to come home. You're probably saying to yourself, many of you are saying, well, I'm a Christian and I don't need to say I want to come home. And I would tell you that you need to say that as much as anybody else does for this reason. We are so consumed with what we will eat and what we will drink and where we will go and what we will get. And we pray to the Lord over and over again, Lord, help me get my job, help my child come home, help help me do this, Father, help us do that, my car's messed up, Lord, and there's nothing wrong with praying those prayers, but the prayer that he wants to hear more than anything else, will you come sit down with me? Can we be together? I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I just want to go home.